Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. So I've got a question for you of the culinary variety. Um, so my younger son had sausages the other day, and I don't really eat red meat. Um, but, uh, but I did wonder this as I thought about the sausages that he had eaten and then the leftover sausages the next day. Why are cold sausages nicer than hot sausages? A, I know you did, you're vegetarian, but do you agree with that question, if you can remember back to eating sausages? And what other foods are better cold than hot? Well, you make an interesting... I mean, it's, it's all context, isn't it? It's all context. Would you want a cold sausage in a sausage sandwich? Yeah. Okay, then um, maybe, maybe you do just genuinely prefer a cold sausage. But yeah, there, I mean, I love a cold cocktail sausage. I mean, I am talking about the veggie ones. A vegetarian cold sausages as nice as vegetarian hot sausages. I, I, to, to me, it is context. Right. You know, I like an iced coffee on a on a hot day, but on a winter's day, I want a hot a hot cup of coffee. But you don't mind a cold sausage on a winter's day do you a cold vegetarian sausage no but but i mean i i, I like a takeaway pizza the morning after cold out of the fridge but if it arrived cold i'd phone up and complain about it i'm not sure about the cold pizza i think there's some characteristic to the sausage that that, <laughs> that makes it that makes it sort of okay cold i don't know what it is but what other foods would you like cold you pizza you'd have cold falafel no, cold, cold falafel is bad. I think you want that warm. Well, exactly. Don't you? you see yeah. that? Look there. You see that? That proves my point. Yeah, I'm onto something, aren't well, I? We could get. We could find out from our listeners, and we can get some kind of spreadsheet going. That sounds like a useful, a good use of time, doesn't it? Hot or not? Hot or not? Hey, um, so we're going to be talking about music this week, and we're, we're going to explain in yeah. more context in a second. Um, but I. Th- 
thought in advance of the episode I would write down some band names and ask you oh, God. ask you whether you think they're real or not real. Okay, good. Okay, that's good. That's quite good. That's so good. let me just see how that's many I've, how many I've written down. One, two, three, four, five. So I think I've written seven down. What we'll do is we'll go through them and then I'll tell you how many you got right at the end. Okay, fine. All right. Yeah. Um, Gorky's zygotic monkey. A uh, false. Dumpy's rusty nuts. No, false. Definitely false. <laughs> the the <laughs> the butthole surfers. No, false. Ned, Ned's atomic dustbin. No, false. Thirty odd foot of grunts. False. The new fast automatic daffodils. False. Half man, half biscuit. True. They were all real, so you only got you only got one right. You're not serious. Yeah. I mean that doesn't make that can't believe that. What? Which one in particular can't you believe? None of them. <laughs> not even Dumpy's rusty nuts. You just made that up. I didn't. I think these are with the exception of perhaps um thirty odd foot of grunts, which was Russell Crowe's band, um, I think all of these would have been played with some regularity by John Peel. You didn't just make them up? No. Did you have to go to some reference book to find them, or did you know them off the top of your head? Uh, I think I, uh, I wrote down five of them, and then um, a, Google, a Googled band. Crumbs, I mean, I nearly it was nearly a like I nearly like got a golden duck. I mean, it's like one and a clean sweep of wrong answers almost. I mean, that is honestly that is. I mean, okay, I think you've you've laid down, you've thrown down the gauntlet now. It's I'm going to have to do sort of, you know. Economic theorists. No, no, no. Like Labour Party fact of the 1920s or something. Okay. Uh, I think I think I'm going to be right back at you next week. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. I look forward uh, to it. I'm obscure. I, I think I'll find five really obscure Labour Party true false things. I might wear a wire. Maybe Michael Spicer could be connected to it. That'd be good. We should get him on. We should definitely get him on. Yeah. My children love Michael Spicer. Anywho, so so um, we should talk about anywho. Any that's how, as they say in Canada. So you tell us what we're talking about on the podcast this week. Yeah, so this week we're talking about the music industry. Now, before the summer, you'll remember that we did an episode on saving the arts, and then afterwards, um, lots of people got in touch, uh, sort of highlighting specifically the problems facing musicians, and asked if we could cover that uh, in its own right. Now, we know that live performances aren't going to be happening in the usual way anytime soon, but the last six months have shown how difficult it is for musicians to earn money in other ways, particularly uh, the challenges around earning money from music streaming. There's a big campaign, uh, you may well have seen it on social media, called Broken Record, and this has emerged calling for a rethink of streaming to fix what they see as a broken business model. Uh, So we're going to be exploring what they want to happen, as well as wider problems facing musicians. We're going to be talking first to one of our most celebrated and accomplished classical violinists, Tasmin Little, and she's going to be talking about why she's been calling for more support for musicians during the crisis. And then we have Naomi Pohl from the Musicians Union and Tom Gray, who's behind this broken record campaign. And they're going to be talking about the problems with streaming and what perhaps can be done about it, what the solutions are. And our cheerful person this week, one we made earlier with sticky back plastic, it's Connie Huck, former presenter, decade long presenter of Blue Peter. 
and the author of a brilliant book of contemporary fairy tales, Fearless Fairy Tales. What's your reason to be cheerful this week? Uh, well, here's my reason to be cheerful. We're recording on Friday. The New Zealand election is Saturday. And so my reason to be cheerful is Jacinda Ardern's victory in the New Zealand election. You're that confident? Um, I'm confident that we can take it out and replace it with another reason to be cheerful. Uh, have you got a backup? Somehow, <laughs> if she somehow loses. Uh, um, no, uh, I think it's, um, you know, she's obviously dealt with the issues around the pandemic incredibly well. She, we've done interesting recent episodes on her plans and the things she's um, uh, she's going to do. And um, so that's it. I- I'll give you a second bonus one, which is, my son's school, my son's just gone to secondary school, as you know, and um, they had a sort of day where they don't do like the normal lessons. They they kind of are in their tutor group for the whole day. And they did two hours on Black Lives Matter. Fantastic. And honestly, it was really inspiring hearing him come home and talk about what they learned. They also had, did this really interesting handout with um, sort of, what books people could read and also you'll be pleased to hear what podcasts they would could listen people could listen to so and... recommended podcasts we weren't on the list uh... um but uh but but you know uh like in terms of the books afua hirsch's book british um sort of different podcasts uh i think including rennie edo lodge um a podcast called 1619 about slavery i mean really so so I thought, I mean, it's great that, uh, you know, I think, you know, kids are learning about this in school. Just can't believe they didn't recommend a podcast with two middle-aged white guys. Exactly. What's your reason to be cheerful? Went downstairs the other day, first thing in the morning. Yeah. And I noticed, sort of squirreled away on top of our fridge, was a small bottle of vodka. So not a big one that you would take to a party, more like one you'd see somebody drinking from from a brown paper bag. I yeah. Thought, what what the hell is going on here? I'm sober. Sarah isn't a vodka drinker, but also like why is she hiding alcohol on top of the fridge? It's it's very strange to me. Here's what happened. Our son who is 4 is learning to write at the moment and insists on using a marker pen. Right. We've got a white kitchen table. Right. And he's got permanent marker all over the table. Sarah was telling a friend about this and said, you know how to get marker off a table. And her friend said, oh, yeah, you just need to use some spirit on it, meaning like white spirit or methylated spirits or whatever. Sarah didn't understand and went out and bought a bottle of vodka and poured it all over the table to clean it off. Did it work? No. Don't try this at home. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, to give us an idea of how the crisis is affecting musicians, we are joined by one of our most celebrated violinists, Tasmin Little. Hello. Hi. Hello. That's a nice introduction. Thank you very much. Well, celebrated violinist, but I think Ed is more impressed by the fact that you uh, you, you had a walk-on part in Emmerdale Farm, age seven. <laughs> That's right. Indeed. Well, I think we're going to gloss over that one, really, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, 
I, I know that is, this is uh, something that you've you've been uh, speaking out about and advocating for musicians during the crisis. So I wondered if we could just start by asking you if you could talk about your experience and also the experiences that you've heard from other musicians uh, d- during the crisis this year. Yes, of course. Um, I mean, I think what has connected the musical world is this real sense of a kind of bereavement, if you like, because um, making music, first of all, is is part of our identity, but it's also um, our our real desire to connect with audiences. And so it isn't just that we couldn't play the concerts, it's that we couldn't work with colleagues um, and still can't um, very much. And um, the connection with the general public has obviously been very difficult to maintain. And people have found very creative ways around this. People have done uh, little house concerts and streamed them. But really, what a musician loves to do is walk on a stage, look at an audience and connect with them. And of course, we've not been able to do that. How seriously do you think the government are taking the plight of the music industry? There's been these suggestions and advertising campaigns seemingly aimed at artists saying, well, have you thought about retraining? How does that strike you? I think we've all been hearing a, a great um, range of, uh, of different messages, one being we are the beating heart of the country. And then the next one, no, I'm very sorry. Um, you know, if you can't make it work, you better go and retrain. Um, so I, you know, I think that at the moment, I don't feel that uh, the plight of musicians is really being um, really thought about because I, I think partly due to a certain ignorance, but also I I understand that there are so many um, places where one can put money and there's only a certain amount in the pot. Nevertheless, I do think that if we're only going to talk about money, let's talk about this. Arts and culture contribute $10.8 billion directly to the UK economy. Now, if for no other reason, then how about that 10.8 billion that we can all give back when we are in a position to perform regularly? Apart from that, uh, what about people in their local communities who rely very much on their local theatre or even the church where some um, concerts are put on? It's a huge part of the community. And I think we neglect this at our peril because I think the arts are part of the glue that um, helps us all stick together. And certainly when we were all in lockdown, how was everybody spending their time? What was everybody actually doing? I'll tell you what they were doing. They were watching Netflix. They were looking at the television. They were watching DVDs. They were streaming stuff. It's the arts, the arts, the arts. That's what they were doing. And they'd have been bored, stupid without us. So don't lose us. You need us. And and uh, Tasman, say something about the role of freelancers and the self-employed, because, because it, it feels like part of the problem with government support. Uh, I mean, there are a number of problems from my perspective, but part of the problem is, is sort of undervaluing or underestimating or almost not realizing the role of self-employed people in lots of in lots of the creative industries. 
Let me try to give an overview of what freelancers provide. So um, I just spoke about Netflix and about television and films. Now, anything to do with any musical aspect is most likely going to have been um, performed by freelancers. So, you know, the the, the music to your fam- uh, favourite glossy Hollywood uh, film would have been done by freelancers in a studio. Um, television programs, um, you know, all of these sorts of things. It's freelancers. So, you know, freelancers are totally part of the fabric of every single bit of the arts in this country. You know, there are also other people who are involved in putting on um, concerts or theatres. You know, you've got a whole other raft of um, people who will be your backstage staff, the administrative staff, the box office, the technicians, piano tuner, if there's a piano there. Um, you know, all these people are are sort of sub-employed by um by the by the concerts themselves and the people who are giving the concerts we need all of these other people in order to be the person that everybody sees when they walk on stage as you look around the world husband do you see other countries doing it better in terms of the support that has been provided yes uh, there's that's an unequivocal yes uh, so in Germany, I think um, musicians were on pretty much full pay. Uh, in France, they were being given a, a monthly amount. Um, I mean, I think everywhere's managed to do it a bit better than us. And I think, again, we're back to the value of musicians, the value that is placed on um, people that, that provide this important role. And it, it isn't enough just to pay lip service to it. And I do know that an enormous amount has obviously been found in order to try to support venues. And that is wonderful. But if you haven't got anybody to put in the venues, nobody to provide any um, content, then, you know, it's a big white elephant sitting there. Just last question, Tasman. Um, we have a thing um, on the podcast, which is maybe requires a bit of suspending of disbelief. And we call it the Jeffocracy, which is this sort of utopia, or he claims it would be a utopia, where Jeff is the sort of benign, benign ruler. If- Let me tell you something. It would, be, it would be very musician friendly as well, because I would want, um, you know, a brass section to accompany me wherever i went to herald my arrival play a fanfare very sort of north, very north korea um uh, uh if if you were sort of if you had kind of carte blanche if you had total free reign what would you want to be seeing government or the jeffocracy to be to be doing during particularly during this crisis so, um, well, there are some concrete things um, that you could do for us, Jeff, actually. And um, the first one being, if we are going to have to continue to socially distance our audiences, um, what, what you could do for us is all the tickets that cannot be sold, because obviously you need to have a certain amount of seats in between each person would you please buy those seats so that um, even though the hall isn't at capacity it's still financially viable for the venue and it's nice for the musicians because we can play and get paid it's also nice for the audience that make it in uh, to the hall it would also really give us the good message that actually we are important and that we do provide something i think she's got the job jeff i think so 
Jasmine Little, we're really delighted that you've joined us. You're you're a brilliant advocate for your uh, profession. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure to speak to both of you. All right, to talk to us about the situation with musicians more generally and also some idea, give us some ideas about what can be done. We're going to talk to Naomi Pohl, who is Deputy General Secretary of the Musicians' Union, and Tom Gray, who is co-founder of the Broken Record campaign. You will have seen hashtag Broken Record all over social media. Uh, Tom's also a member of the, uh, the fine and Mercury Award-winning band Gomez. Hello, both. Hiya. Hi there. Naomi, let, let's start with you. So I wondered if we could just start with asking you what you are hearing from members of the Musicians' Union about the, the experiences they're having during all of this and the, the problems they're facing at the moment. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, we've never seen a crisis like it in the music industry. So uh, all of our members' work disappeared in March overnight. Um, so that's the studios closing. Obviously, the live performance sector went down. There was also pretty much no music teaching going on because the schools were closed um, and uh, the orchestras weren't working. So, I mean, literally all of our members' work disappeared. Um, and... Uh, you know, about over 30% of our members didn't qualify for any government income supports. They didn't qualify for the furlough scheme. They didn't qualify for the self-employed scheme. Um, And about over 80% of members now are telling us that they're in financial hardship. Uh, So it's really brutal. um, And obviously, we're very concerned that Uh, Our members are possibly going off to find other jobs if they can, but we all know there's not many jobs around. So um, potentially really struggling to pay their bills. Um, And it's difficult to know what to say to people who are in that position because there's some support out there, but it's nothing like sufficient. What is it about the way your life is set up as a musician? Is it that you're self-employed, you're director of a company? What is it that, that meant so many musicians fall through the cracks of the government support? Well, it is the freelance nature of it, but the self-employed scheme, um, you had to have over 50% of your usual income coming from self-employed work in order to qualify for it. So that was the main issue our members faced. If they were um, getting less than 50% of their income from self-employment, but their PAYE work was on zero hours contracts and it was sessional, you know, bits and pieces of work, they didn't necessarily get furloughed either. Um, so that's why we've seen so many musicians getting zero uh, income um, from the government schemes and actually having to rely on hardship schemes like help musicians. The last crisis that the music uh, industry or mus- musicians faced, like on this scale, was really when the talkies came in in the cinemas and they stopped uh, using orchestras. Um, so it's, you know, certainly something that's never been dealt with in my lifetime and uh, all, all the current MU staff, it's just such a shocking um, situation. Very is, worrying. Is there such a thing when we think about a, a working musician? You know, is, is there somebody who sits on the average line what what would that look like how how typically would it be split between a recording artist uh, a, a session musician a, a live performer where where does the sort of average musicians union member sit well most of our members are self-employed about 90 percent, and most of them do a variety of work so um we call it the portfolio career. Essentially, they might do a bit of music teaching in the week. They might do a bit of uh, work for a, an orchestra as a freelancer. Um, they might do the odd uh, gig in the West End or gig in their local pub. Um, so it's a really mixed bag. And 
the average earnings of musicians are about um, £20,000 from music alone. Um, obviously, some of our members do have other supplementary income, but those who are primarily working as musicians, it is because they're doing a, a real mixture of things. And, and before we sort of talk to Tom about the, the music industry, the recording industry particularly, and some of the structural problems with that, um, the, the response we've seen from the government and the package that the government have put together what what have they got right and what have they got wrong well we were really pleased when the self-employed scheme came in and actually when the chancellor announced it he specifically referred to musicians so i think that was a big win early on and um, but then obviously we started to see musicians getting in touch with us and saying that they didn't qualify so it's been a real problem that we've just not had any engagement from the treasury on trying to fill in the gaps of those schemes it feels like they've they feel they've done enough so however many times we make the arguments and we're making them on a pretty much daily basis it's not there's been no change there um the argument we're making now is that the live performance sector has been particularly badly hit and is likely to take a much longer to recover than a lot of other businesses so we're calling for sector specific uh, support for freelancers um, and we'd also love to see a scheme along the lines of the eat out to help out scheme where um there's some sort of subsidy for performances to go ahead under social distancing. I mean, our, our members want to get back to work, essentially. They want to be out there performing. And I think it's it has had an impact on their mental health that they're sitting at home, unable to do what they love and what they do best. Uh, Tom, let's, let's move on to the Broken Record campaign. So everybody will be aware there's been this massive shift in the recorded music industry over the past couple of decades where we went from buying records and CDs to actually not buying that many CDs to streaming platforms coming in. And in, in terms of hours listened to music consumed, there's been this massive rise. But at the same time, perhaps from an artist's point of view, the, the economic model has, has not caught up with that can you, you can talk us through broken record and what has happened really you've got a bit of a sort of layer cake of problems and the truth is um you know one of the reasons why i called it broken record is because people have been hearing about these kinds of problems for a very long time at the at the center of certainly the major label um system is a thing called the recoupment deal which even in the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s and now is an unethical exploitative deal which sets any artist who signs one at a huge disadvantage and is a very curious form of investment whereby um, an artist has to pay back all the money that is spent on them through their share of the, of, of the, of the sale or the stream, which is, you'd think what would, not, would happen is once the record company makes all their money back, they'd start paying a royalty. That's what you'd think. But that's not what happens. So it's sort of forever been the case that if you're a musician and you've got a record deal, if, if, if they send a taxi for you, if you spend money in a studio recording the album, if you hire somebody to make a video, that, that, that comes out of, of your, just out of your bit of the money. Yeah, and, and you've, you've given them your intellectual property for the life of copyright, or as long as can be monetized, which is in this country like 70 years, right? So you're never going to get that back. So what you've then got is, okay, so that's never been dealt with. There's a real contract problem at the center of the music business. But then you stack on top of that the streaming system, which is this 
tiny micropayment system um, where <laughs> all of these tiny amounts of money, millions of streams have very, very little value. And then you realize that the artist is only going to get 15 or 20 percent of that tiny, tiny amount of money. And then that 15 or 20 percent of that tiny, tiny amount of money is going to be set against the debt that they owe to the label. And you start to realize that most artists are not getting anything. And, and that's really fundamentally problematic and unsustainable. But then, you know, on, and then on top of that, so then you take that layer and then you go, okay, so what's going on here? The streaming platforms, which are these venture capital companies who are run entirely on venture capital money and do not care about profit. And you, 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 and they wouldn't disagree with me. If we had any employee from Spotify here now, they would tell you that the, the culture within those companies is not about making money. It's about gaining users and gaining The same mar- as with Uber or whatever. Yeah. They just want as many people using it as possible. And Precisely. We'll be so, able so, to sell it. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, uh, the very, so you have this really fundamental problem where the market and the pricing is being set by a company who don't care about making money. And that's that when that is the value of the totality of recorded music, you've got a really, really problem, structural problem. And then the artists are at the very bottom of this business chain in this in this collapsing system and are not in a good state. I mean, the only way of getting money these days is to get an advance out of a record company. That's the only way you're going to get paid for recorded music now. And, and I guess if you were a record company executive, you, you would say, you know, uh, I understand the point Tom is making about the business model, but actually we invest all this money into artists. And, you know, it's a bit like gambling. You only see a, a return every now and again. And when, when you see that return, it can be huge. But a lot of the time they're, they're losing their investments. Of course. But like I say, why wouldn't you have a deal where when you make your money back, you start paying the artist their share. Like, what version of risk is that? That is a, that's a standard investment scheme, right? When you make your money back, then that's when you start, we all start sharing in the money. That, that, that's not what they're doing. I don't think anybody in who works for a record company is evil. I just think that what we've got is a system where uh, big corporations will not do anything to disadvantage themselves and their shareholders and have built this system on this incredibly exploitative deal and if they if they go oh no we're going to have to stop doing this exploitative deal they're going to lose a hell of a lot of money overnight and and their shareholders will get very angry but but at the same time which is why i always point towards regulation i always say well look we're not going to the record company people can't actively do something to get less money for their shareholders. We know they won't do that. And we know that Spotify isn't going to stop trying to get loads and loads of users. None of these people are bad people. It's just that's what they do. There's, there's just one, one thing that doesn't quite make sense to me is I, I think I'm right in saying that people are spending at this point more on music, if you take the streaming services into account, than they were in the dying days of CDs. So if there's more money in the pot, even though Spotify care more about, and, and Apple Music or whoever care more about 
users than they do about making a profit. Where, where's that money going and why is it not filtering down to the artists? Yeah, I mean, the, pe- the big winners are the major labels. Um, Universal and Sony, I think, both made a billion each in the first quarter. And as I just described to you, their deals aren't, they're not in the business of passing on that money to the artists who, who are signed because to the them. the foundations of the music industry. Because the foundation, yeah. yeah. Look, Drake, Drake, okay. Everyone knows who Drake is. I'm sure all of our kids have listened to Drake at some point. Um, even if you're not listening to Drake yourself. Drake, is, last year, was the most streamed artist on the planet, right? Most streamed artist on the planet. Only a third of his income comes from recorded music, Right. And that's the biggest global superstar. What's, what's interesting is, is that if you actually go further down the food chain, um, uh, you'll find that bands and don't make... Per, per player in a band who is a sort of a reasonable mid-level band, they're not making anything from streaming. And also, I guess coronavirus brings it into focus in that if, okay, you say the business model's switched, uh, streaming isn't record sales, it's a way of promoting your other endeavours like live gigs and so on. As soon as live gigs aren't there anymore, that that falls to pieces and brings it all into sharp focus. Well, it's, it's just a lie, isn't it? I mean, that was a lie that was sold in order to allow, in order to transfer the value onto the live market. It's like, we're the, we're the big record companies. What we're going to do is we're going to say to the live industry, you go and get the money for the artists. We're just going to, we're just going to rake in all this money for ourselves. But what's happened in the, with live is you've taken away half of most people or, 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 or half of the industry, but, but, 90% of their income or 99% of their income actually you know it's most most artists i know just make their money from live and have just have just given up on streaming altogether so let, let's talk about solutions uh, to both of you tom you've called for a user centric payment system just at the at the sort of simple in the simplest form possible can you just explain what would be different um, at the moment, what happens when you pay your subscription fee is all the money goes off into this big pool and then just gets shared out pro rata based on how many times any particular track gets played. So so what's actually happening to if, if you're with your £10 at the moment, when you put your £10 in, most of it is probably going to Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran and Drake, whether you listen to them or not, because they've got the most plays in the system. In a user-centric system your money would only go to the music that you personally listen to. That's what it is. We'll split up your tenor amongst the stuff that you listen to. Um, in fact, the, they, the, the calculation is, I think, that the average user right now, only about one, between £1.50 and £2.50 of the music that you pay every month goes to the music that you listen to. And what else would you like to see happen then? For me, the most... The clearest solution short term that could be done is a change to licensing so that um, the two different activities that are going on in streaming can be licensed differently. At the moment, all the music is paid like it's a distribution, like it's almost like a small purchase. But we all know a lot of the music on, on, on Spotify isn't music that we've chosen for ourselves. It's played to us algorithmically. It's on playlists. It's being pushed to us. We're not pulling it. There's two different activities going on here. 
And we also know that Spotify pay record companies two different rates for those two different activities for pushes and pulls. Now, if you take, I think it's around 25% of Deezer, 30% of Spotify, I think it's around 25 or 30% of Apple as well is playlisted or algorithmic music. If that music uh, was licensed um, like a communication to the public or broadcast, instead of that money going straight to a record label, that money would go to the songwriters and to the people who play on the record. So Naomi's members would suddenly get paid money for the first time ever by streaming. And Naomi, what else would you like to see? Because you, the Musicians Union are also running a campaign to fix streaming. What, what do you think of what Tom is saying? Obviously, you, you quite like some of the stuff he's saying. And, and what else would you like to see? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things we'd like to see is to, is for um, there to be a genuine negotiation within the music industry to see if we can have a fairer apportionment of um, of streaming income. So one of the big problems that we've got at the moment is the lack of transparency around how much money is actually in the system and where it goes, um, because it doesn't seem to filter down. It doesn't seem to trickle down to the artists, the performers uh, and the songwriters. Um, so we'd like greater transparency for a start. And I think the fact that the DCMS Select Committee have announced uh, an inquiry into the economics of streaming will really help because we hope that they might get sight of data um, that we don't have access to because of non-disclosure agreements. So there's quite a lot of uh, puzzle pieces, which is, again, why we've been calling for a government review. Um, so there's a lot of potential solutions, but one solution isn't going to cut it by itself. So user-centric royalty distribution would be a step forward, but that's not going to fix the problem. We've also got to look at the contracts that the labels are issuing. We've also got to look at the way that the song is valued. Um, so there's quite a lot to talk about, but a lot of potential things that could make a big difference to creators and performers. How, how does change come about then? Because your music industry, industry is different from other products, to use a horrible word, because the people who consume it are so passionate about it. That's something that could be tapped into. Um, also, organising of musicians, be it through the music, Musicians Union or something else, could be a way of changing things. And, and finding somebody at one of those big record labels to blink first or be brave enough to move in your direction how 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 does change happen and of course government's the other one we've mentioned as well regulation what's great about broken record is that artists have actually come together obviously tom's been um leading the charge but there's been a lot of artists beginning to call it out and i think that has put a lot of pressure on the labels which has been really good and probably put quite a lot of pressure on the streaming platforms as well um, so I think, yes, absolutely, we need to get um, artists and songwriters motivated. And I think people are getting angry about it at the moment because they're not earning and it's become really clear that recorded music is not helping to sustain their careers. Yeah, it's about pressure because we, we can't do anything else, really. Uh, I mean, since I started the campaign, I always said, you know, there's there's a really big education piece here, not least sort of teaching uh our, our legislators how this really works um but 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 also like teaching uh young artists about the kinds of deals that are gonna be ruinous for them if they if they sign them 
it's very hard, you know, governments don't like to get involved in contract law between private individuals or between organisations and individuals. Um, but I think the music industry is this incredible sort of example of every kind of thing that's been going wrong in, in this sort of era. We have, we have big tech exploitation, we have people stealing our data, we have NDAs up the, up the walls, we have contract workers being ripped off left, right and centre... And because we are the first industry, were the first industry to go fully digital, I think that it'd be, we're a really useful example and a really useful sort of test case to look at and say, what can go wrong? And how do we, how do, how do we look at this and say, let's not let this happen again? Um, because, you know, it, it's, it's, a real, it's a real shame. You know, Germany's got much better law around this stuff um, they're not. You're not allowed to take the the, the, the copyright from uh, an individual um, in that country. You can only have a license. Um, you know, so it's not like we're asking for something that doesn't exist elsewhere. Do you feel optimistic if that is happening elsewhere in Europe? Even you know, in a future outside the EU, there'll be a certain amount of pressure to change things here. I feel very optimistic as of yesterday because of the select committee inquiry. I think uh, it feels like a big step forward to have this discussion in a public forum with the, the government's involvement. I feel really optimistic too. Hopefully through things like Broken Record, what we can actually do is stop a really good um, progressive conversation between artists and songwriters and performers with, with our legislators and say, we're not just whining idiots. We're not just protesting. We're not angry. We're not ranting at you. There's, there's, a, there's a real good economic structural reason for solving these problems. It's not, it's not about what's fair. It's about what's right for the country and what's right for the culture of the country. I mean, we are a bit angry, but... Oh, yeah, we are a bit angry. <laughs> uh, Naomi Pohl, Tom Gray, thanks so much for setting that out so clearly for us. Thank you. Thanks. So, you're the expert, you're the DJ. Unemployed, ish, unemployed DJ. Available for socially distanced parties. H- hugely. Zoom links and hugely other available. matters. Go on, what do you think? Well, firstly, I think Tom is right when he says that it's not that the music industry is run by bad guys. There's nothing inherently bad about a record company. I've known lots and lots of people working record companies over the years. And in my experience, without exception, people I've known from the top downwards get into it because they love music and they want to work with and support talented artists. And, And that's what motivates them and that's what they go and do every day. But that being said... It is an industry that perhaps has its foundations in a more exploitative era. And those kinds of structural issues, like the way that advances are recouped, uh, combined with the disruptive business model of streaming services, has worked against some creators of music and it's tipped the balance of power even further away from them. And as Tom acknowledged, it's really difficult for one record company to change that unilaterally because they're answerable to shareholders and they have competitors. So so it does seem to make sense that regulation could be an answer to what is essentially a broken market model. So, you know, Shazam, not Shazam, Napster and all of that, 
Well, that Napster was clearly very bad news because it was streaming, but without any payment at all. When this was being designed, I mean, were these, did these debates happen about, well, you know, Napster is like a disaster? Well, Napster but- was just piracy. They, they just started sharing all this music without paying for it, and it got shut down, obviously. Uh, but the trouble was then the genie was out of the bottle. Yeah. People got used to having music instantly. Yeah. And it seems to me that streaming services were in a rush to replace that legally yeah. in a kind of let's get it up and running and worry about the business model later kind of a way. Yeah. And making those deals with record companies quickly yeah. led to a setup where the balance of powers tilted away from the artist. And, and your point is that the record companies have had massive lowering of costs. They don't have to produce a million CDs anymore. But the artists have sort of, I mean, they're worse off, presumably, the artists than they used to be when the when it was cds and records yeah i'm sure you could find musicians for whom that isn't the case but i think what an artist used to need from a record company in terms of getting a record made and getting it out there physically into shops up and down the country is obviously very different now uh, as is the recording process and even though i'm sure that a lot of yeah. that money is rechanneled and invested in acts in other ways by the record companies. If you are a musician looking at how, in some ways, it's easier for record companies to make more money by having fewer costs yeah. whilst your own work is devalued, it, it seems like these deals are a bit broken and belong to a different era. Um, I, I mean, I must say, I was struck by all, all of um, what Tom and Naomi were saying, uh, and also by Tasman. I mean, just about the sort of i thought that what she was really interesting was both about the importance of the industry which is i guess something we know about but it was really interesting to hear her spell it out but also you know the role of freelancers the self-employed who are really really being under supported in this crisis you know i i think we're in the middle of a terrible crisis but the question is not just how we deal with the crisis but what's but 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 that is then related to what is what are things going to be like on the other side, and are the musicians, you know, the businesses and all that going to be around on the other side? And I think the crisis is sort of it sounds like the crisis has accentuated an already incredibly difficult situation for a lot of people in the music industry. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast dot com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Right, for our cheerful person this week, we have the co-author of a fantastic new book. It's called Fearless Fairy Tales. Um, in it, you will meet the likes of Trumple Stiltskin and Moldy Socks. She's holding it up on the Zoom as we speak. Connie Huck, hello. Connie Huck, shameless publicist, is holding the book up already <laughs> minutes into the Zoom. We've all enjoyed the book immensely, but we have a couple of things to address beforehand. Sticky um, back plastic. Well, ah. firstly, firstly, Ed had a very bad experience. Here's one with, I made earlier. Yeah, Ed, 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 he had a very bad experience with John Noakes in, was it St Pancras? True, or King's actually. The late John Noakes. It wasn't a very bad experience. He's the late John Noakes, so I feel bad about saying this. The late, great John Noakes. I went up to him when I was about, it might have been when I was six or it might be when I was eight at King's Cross, and he didn't seem overjoyed to see me. Oh, how how awful he was just well he wasn't he was he wasn't awful he wasn't awful but you know it was he was slightly he was slightly i think he look, he probably had lots of things on his mind and was you know, he morning was he morning shep <laughs> maybe Could have been. maybe that's right i like that jeff goes for like getting into the psyche and thinking of the reasons why because you know what Ed, you've just shattered a million people's childhoods now um no, I look. I I remain. I remain a sort of jo- pro John Noakes. It, 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 it was a cold morning in K- at King's Cross Station. He had other things on his mind. That's my view. When people approach you, Connie, can you tell by the age and the look in their eye that they were a Blue Peter viewer when you were a host? I find it hard to age people, so I just always think people are my peers. But then, like I say, I'm deluded. Um, always, I go around perpetually thinking I'm in my twenties, and then people come up to me and say. I grew up with you. And I think, no, it can't be. We're the same age, surely. Joel, who researches the show, this this is, we were saying before we turned the mic on, that this has been basically, he's he's been working for us for 18 months. We've interviewed prime ministers. We've interviewed former prime ministers. Uh, we've interviewed all kinds of people. You are the highlight, Connie. Yeah, because um, he knows my politics is better than any of those jokers. Uh, uh, well, that might That's be true right. as well. well. We'll pass on your best to Jacinda Ardern. What was the thing you were least good at on Blue Peter, Connie, which was like, oh, God, we're going to have to make a sort of rocket ship out of a cornflake packet. That's going to be a nightmare. I liked making all the rocket ships. Out of the all right. I'm terrible at sports. I'm so unsporty. And so, ah. you know, every time they'd be like, oh, you're going training with the Royal Marines or something like that. I'd be, like, oh, I'd be cringing because I'm a wimp. So, yeah, I, I used to often say, give me the art galleries and the museums. You know, I'll make the uh, rocket ship out of the toilet roll. Well, let, let's talk about the book then. I know it's not your first foray into uh, writing children's books. Uh, we talked about uh, Cookie on the radio a couple of years ago. But this this is something different that you've been cooking up for a while. It's it's fairy tales. I mean, I, I suppose the headline is with a modern twist. Can, can you do a better sell for me, Connie? 
Yeah, so they're all your traditional fairy tales, but they've been updated for the modern day. So they've all got sort of contemporary twists and turns and takes on them. So, for instance, um, to give you an example, I shall flip to the contents page. Sleeping Brainy um, has replaced Sleeping Beauty. Her dad, the king, wants her to be a princess, but she wants to be Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, Mouldy Socks and the Three Bears. Mouldy Socks uh, has been nicknamed so because he has no personal hygiene. He has a bedroom that's like a rubbish tip with a giant pile of mouldy socks in the corner but why you ask it's because he's addicted to his ipad and always gaming so he never tidies up never does any chores um one day he's playing candy crunch not candy crush uh candy crunch because and he's so addicted to it he takes a wrong turn ends up in the forest meets the three bears um little red riding in the hood is all about a sort of fashion designer that lives in an urban sprawl um, in, in an estate um, who meets a guy called Wolf who likes wearing dresses and she designs something for him and becomes the hit at the Vanity Fairy Tale catwalk show. Um, Jack and the Baked Beanstalk is all about... I'll see if you can get what the coded uh, metaphorical inside uh, meaning sewn in is. So Jack... Um, plants the magic baked beans, grows the beanstalk. The giants will come down and live with the villagers, but then the villagers get angry. Well, the village elders, they vote to chop the beanstalk down and send the giants back because they think the giants are, you know, there's too many in the village. So they do that. And then suddenly in the village, there's a bit real void going on because the giants have been sent away. Any ideas? <laughs> no. I think we get, the, we get your drift, definitely. You get my drift. Okay. Princess and the Pea Shooter. It's kind of like sort of about gu- gun crime in, in a veiled way. And what, Connie, what, what gave you the inspiration? I, I mean, honestly, having, having looked through it, it is, it is really inspiring. What, what gave you the inspiration for it? I mean, I read all the fairy tale classics to my two boys. And how old are they? How old are they now? Six and eight. So right, year right. four and year two. And I remember yeah. actually at one point reading the Ladybird's classic of um, Sleeping Beauty. And there's this, this really, there's this really creepy picture um, of Sleeping Beauty. And she's asleep essentially in a glass coffin in the forest. And this prince comes and finds her. And he's sort of ogling at her through this glass box, this beautiful woman in case. And I was like, mm, this is really creepy. But there's loads of sort of creepy stuff. The Chris kissing the, the frogs and all of this. Um, but, you know, obviously it's not creepy because they're children's stories. But I did think that these would work nicely in conjunction um, with them because also growing up I never saw any sort of brown faces in in the books I read and you know people from minorities in general because these stories are so old you know they predate woke essentially so I've sort of tried to just update them with sort of modern values and messages and morals you know there's one called Spinocchio which is about a newsreader and every time he reads fake news his nose grows, you know. So there's lots of different sort of modern messages in there. Um, and I'm always, I'm a big fan of humour. There's a real snobbery in kids' books towards humour. Even the Department for Education, like all the stuff they sort of peddle. You, we want to get kids into reading. And if humour is a gateway into that, then, you know, comedy Definitely. Is, is brilliant. Yeah. And also we want them to grow up to be adults with a good sense of humour. And it's the primary years in which they're shaping and forming. Secondary school, they're done. 20s, too late. 30s, you need therapy to undo it all. And I don't think people place enough importance on the primary years. I think they should be teaching all sorts of stuff. I remember not knowing what taxes were, just thinking they're this like evil thing. I did economics at uni and that was kind of when 
when I really got it, like so late on in the day, because people don't teach you this stuff. But if we get like altruism and good values into our primary school kids, whether they're the head of a FTSE 100 company or, you know, know, leader of the USA or just, you know, whatever they do, sweeping the roads or whatever, they'll want to give back to society because they'll have altruism. And the more you read, books are the only thing that give altruism like no other medium. I do think there should be more done so that kids have sort of the altruistic values and they know more about left and right and politics and it has to be done in the primary years and otherwise people don't engage and I say this about science as well often kids don't come to science till they're in secondary school and by then it's sort of like a foreign language as is politics and as is so much stuff you know there are kids that will engage with that stuff by then but it's so late on that you've lost loads already and then we have people as grown-ups who don't want to read all the bump and get into the thing whereas if it's sort of seeped through and it's part of your language already it's not a chore you know I say the same thing about reading all the time that if kids get into reading younger then they'll be adult readers because it's not a chore and it's not like something you have to do it's just something that you want to do I mean kids have to find the right books for them but everything needs to be put to them in the primary years and then we'll have amazing we'll be growing these amazing grown-ups that will save all the world's problems climate change, poverty, everything. I think I'd vote for you, Connie. I've never gone to politics. I find it hard enough. Like, I, so I've never been on any social media. And then four years ago for a job, like not on Facebook or anything, I had to get on Twitter, basically. And I'm one of these people that, you know, I can't... Like, if somebody replies to a tweet, I feel the need to reply every reply. If someone came up to me in the street and asked a question, I know that's because I've never done social media. Ed's like going, oh dear. Think, think, you've, got to think, you've got to think John Noakes here. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've got, <laughs> you're right, I've got to channel my inner John Noakes. Be more Noakes. No, you're absolutely right. So basically, nappies would go unchanged, you know, vomit would go unwiped up. I'd just be like <laughs> in this vortex. But the flip side of that is, is that, you know, you get all these people that don't agree with your viewpoint and then they hate you and they troll you or whatever. So, yeah, politics isn't for me because it's all sound bites and it's all like, even when you watch these interviews and, you know, you can't actually answer the questions with nuance because Paxman or whoever just wants you to say yes or no to a question. With all due respect, is it black or white? And you're trying to say, no, it's grey. because And they're like, but you haven't answered the question. Is it black or white? And the way the whole system is with the media and the news, it's all a charade. And the truth doesn't matter anymore. It's the perceived truth and it's how everything's spun to be. I just couldn't do it. Politics is lost. It's everyone else's game. <laughs> uh, Connie, Connie Huck, the, the book is Fearless Fairy Tales. You've lived up to Joel's expectations and a lot more. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be on. Cheers. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. If you've got thoughts on what you've heard on this week's episode, uh, you can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. If you've got thoughts on the music industry, Connie Huck, Sticky Back Plastic, here's one I made earlier. Uh, all of those my, rather my lame. My favourite part of the Connie interview, yes. and I don't know if this will have stayed in in the edit, was uh, her doorbell went. Yeah. And um, and her husband was receiving a package and she mentioned that to us. At the end of the interview, you very politely said, oh, what, what, does, uh, what does your husband do for a living? Now, I think a large proportion of the listeners will know that she's married to Charlie Brooker and then she had to explain who Charlie Brooker was and what Black Mirror was Is he and cha- screen wipe. I thought I know that Charlie Brooker does Black Mirror. I didn't realise she was married to Charlie Brooker. 
That is incredibly embarrassing. I think she even said his name. And you were still asking all these questions about what he did for a living. Who was it who said in the episode, I'm, everybody's heard of Drake? Oh, that was when Tom was talking about biggest streaming artist in the world. I mean, I thought he meant Francis, really. <laughs> uh, I was like, yeah, Spanish Armada, all of that. Um, yeah. Um, hi, Ed and Jeff. Really enjoyed your episode. This is Rachel Walker. Uh, last week with Ilhan Omar on the Sunrise Movement, I'm a US politics junkie, and during the Democratic primary, I became very invested in the campaign of Pete Buttigieg. He has a book out now called Trust America's Best Chance about how people trust each other generally and how trust can be regained. I thought he'd be a great guest for a future episode. Mayor Pete, come on down. I would welcome any of those guys. Andrew Yang and the Yang yeah, Gang. Yeah, I mean, the Yang Gang has given us the big sort of Eve Ho, frankly. We've been, try- we've been trying. Oh, really? Well, we've been trying for the Yang Gang and he's sort of been, you know, washing his hair. I mean, it's, we've not had much luck, I think. Let's thank our guests. Let's thank the brilliant Tasmin Little... Tom Gray and Naomi Pohl and the marvellous Connie Hook. Emma Caution produces our podcast. Joel Pierce does all the research. He is ably backed up in that by Zoe Gelber and Fanula DC and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dance. And our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed's Atomic Dustbin. He's been Half Man, Half Biscuit. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustoleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.